impressed with the series that you've been doing, For This We Have Jesus. And we've been singing, no turning back, no turning back. We're going all the way with Jesus. And this morning I want to talk to you about victory over circumstances. Uh, Some of you would like to have that. The circumstances that you're facing right now are unpleasant and not wanted. Some of you can remember circumstances that you wished God had intervened in and had come and brought relief. And apparently he didn't or he didn't do it the way that you wanted him to. And some of us, surely all of us, will come against things that make us wonder where God is and how can we have victory in Jesus. Easy to sing the songs, but hard to live the life and the experience that comes with us. So my reading is from Romans chapter 8, a few verses, and I've put them up there. And I'd like us to consider them because they're very well known to us and we can gloss over them, maybe without really understanding The writer Paul says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Just think about that. Do you love God? Well, you should know that in all things God is working for your good. For us who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined or premeditated that they would be conformed to the likeness of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So it's told us already that if we love God, he's for us, and he's got a plan for us, and that plan is to conform us or make us more like Jesus. We can be sure of that. So who shall separate us from the love of God? What would stop this from happening? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or trouble or hardship or danger or sword? No. In all this we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. There is one thing that can nullify the love of God and its influence on our life, and that is the attitude or the reaction that you and I make towards his love. We can stop loving God. He will never stop loving us. Philip Yancey in one of his books says, There's nothing I can do to make God love me more. And there's nothing I can do to make God love me less. The purpose that God has for us is that he will make us into the likeness of his son, Jesus. So that within me, the very essence of who I am, I can return to the state that are in my relationship with God that existed before the fall, where I can know him and can worship him and he can know me and empower me in that way. God's passionate purpose is to redeem those who were created and who have been affected by the fall and he wants to restore his image in us and in the the world. Two ways he's doing that. The first one is in the future. God is going to do that in the future 
and there's going to be a dramatic event in your life. He's looking to a day where you and I in a moment will be changed to be like him. Something will go on there. We will see him and we will be like him. On that day, the Redeemer will have his way, as the old song says, his people will be ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. That's in the future. But in the present is where we live and where we want God's activity. I am looking for God to be present in my life today and to give me the victory over the circumstances that come to me which are unpleasant. There's a second level that he's working to fulfill his purpose. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, we are to reflect the Lord's glory and we are being transformed. We are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory that comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The word glory gets us, I think. Glory is, I'm not sure how we see that. But if you read in the scriptures in the New Testament, glory equates with character. In the beginning of John's gospel, it said, we saw Jesus, and we saw him, him, the glory, as of the only begotten Son of God. Glory. Now, what did they see? Did they see a little light above God, Jesus' head? Did they? No, they saw how he acted. They saw the character of God reflected in the life of Jesus. And that's what he is asking of us. My goal, says God, is not particularly to change the circumstance you're in. My goal long term is to make you like my son, that your character would be reformed so that you would be more like him. When I became a Christian, the Holy Spirit came into my life and took up residence. And his role, his ministry in me, is to help me become like Jesus. He is there to help me become like him. He does that through enlightening the word of God. He does that through uh, giving me thoughts and uh, opportunities of understanding. And so that as that happens over the years, there should be in my life and yours an incremental change from what we were to who we are becoming. There should be, hopefully, something more to be seen of Jesus. I'm not changed here in a moment. It's not after one service that I come to the front and zap, I'm a new person. Look at that. He's gone, it's a new Calvin. No, it's day by day, week by week, as I allow the word of God to become more real in my life, as I allow God to work his way rather than my way. Over time, hopefully, there would be something that would be apparent. The old sin nature has not been eradicated. Victory over it has certainly been secured by the cross, but in my life there is a battle going on for control of my heart. And so step by step I'm wanting to become more like Jesus. Well, that's the purpose of God. And he will not be diverted from his purpose in you and I. He says, if you're a child of God, my purpose for you is that you become more like my son Jesus. We can mark it down. If you're discouraged with the state of your Christian life this morning, 
If you're feeling guilty about the way that you're operating, ashamed of how you've rejected or neglected your walk, work with God, walk with God, make no mistake, God is going to change you in some way over some time, and one day you will reflect the life of Jesus. Paul again, the writer, wrote to the Philippians, and he said, I'm confident, very confident, that the one who started this good work in you will complete it. It won't go uncompleted. The thing about this is that God knows every circumstance of my life and your life before it takes place. And he has planned for me accordingly. And I do that and you do that in certain things in your life. So we're leaving New Zealand and coming to Hong Kong. I make some plans before it happens. I look for a good price on an air ticket. I make sure I have the papers that allow me to come into Hong Kong and then into the mainland. I, make, I have them. I have insurance. I have my clothes are clean and my bag is packed. I make my plans for something that is yet to happen. Well, in a far greater way, God is doing that in your life and mine. He's preparing the things that we need for that day when we will see him and be like him. You see, I may be surprised by what happens to me tomorrow, but God will not. I may feel I lack the resources to deal with tomorrow's issues, but I don't. Because God has made provision, and he will reveal them if I stop trying to plan my own way through and be still and allow him to be God. He's got the plan. God is never caught by surprise. He knows you. He knows what's happening ahead of you. He sees around the corner where we don't see around the corner. He actually sees us where we are now. And if you think that the hurt and the pain and the situation is not seen by him, think again. He sees it. And he is actively leading you, not on a plan particularly to resolve today's issue, but on his far greater plan to make you more like his son. God works in the good of all things, the Bible things. We read it there. He works for us. Why would I fight that? Why would I try to do it my way? Why do I constantly scheme and dream of a better way of life that I could implement than the one that God has for me? If you were to come to our home, uh, just at the moment, mostly it's Jill and I, but regularly on our living room table, a jigsaw puzzle is presented. And it's a box with a nice picture, and it has 1,000 pieces. And one of us sets it out, and away she goes. I prefer really to wait a while until maybe 975 pieces are in place, and then I bring my skills to the table to finish it off. And uh, often, more often than should be, there's a crisis when we get to the end because the puzzle is not yet complete but the available pieces are. So the room is scoured, the table is turned upside down, my pockets are turned out, and because if the last pieces are not found, that puzzle is worthless and will be discarded very, very quickly. In order for that beautiful picture to emerge on the table there, where we duly photograph it, it needs all the pieces. And I have the feeling that sometimes some of us feel that our life is missing some pieces and that God is not going to be happy with that and he will discard us and turn us away because we've missed out. 
I want to tell you this morning, he will complete the puzzle. He will make it happen. You will not be discarded. In your eyes, you are lovable and valuable. Changeable. And forgivable. And he will not discard you as we might discard a box of jigsaw pieces. It won't happen to you. The providence of God is God taking every situation and turning it into good. We sang that. And if you're honest, some of you will have looked at that and said, I can't sing that honestly. You turn everything for good. And we repeated it and repeated it. Because what you're doing, God, is not turning it into good for me right now. Uh, Some of you won't agree then. I want to take you back two weeks when we were here and Pastor Mike was preaching and he gave us the story of a lady called Mrs. Wesley. And uh, you might remember, uh, because it's pretty astounding, that she had 15 children. And uh, five of them died early in life and 10 of them survived, three boys and seven girls. And he went on to talk about two of those boys were John Wesley and Charles Wesley who have had great impact on the Christian world. If he'd had time, he would have told perhaps the beginning of the story where John Wesley uh, lived in a home, his father was a preacher, and from the very beginning he knew the scriptures. He knew them more than probably any of us better. He knew the, the ways of the church. He knew how to model his preaching on what he'd seen. And he was a good man and an honest man, and he felt that God was calling him to be a missionary. And so much so that he followed that call and he left the the UK and he went to the USA, to the southern states, and he started to preach the gospel. And if you go down to Georgia, there's a beautiful city, old worldly city on the the coastline there called Savannah. And if you walk around Savannah, there are numerous mentions to John Wesley was here, John Wesley Street, John Wesley Park. It seems he made an impact on that city of Savannah. But in his heart, he knew he didn't because very few people responded to the gospel message. They liked his personality. They liked the the entertainment. But nothing was, as it were, established in the form of a church. And Wesley came home to England, a broken man. He said, I went to America to save the natives. But alas, it is I who needed saving. And I mention that because in a congregation like this, there could be some of you who feel like Wesley did. You've been raised in the church. The church from a child has been an important part of your life and you've come and you may know the Bible. You may know the stories of the Bible. You may know the, shall we say, the practices of the church. And yet your heart is empty like John Wesley's was. He was so depressed when he got back to London, he disappeared out of the sight. And one day, just in his despair, he walked down and heard a song and went into this building, a building called Aldersgate. And in there, the man was starting a Bible study on Romans chapter 1. The just shall live by faith. And uh, Wesley said, I listened. As he was reading from Romans chapter 1, I felt a warmth come over me. And I did trust Christ alone for my salvation. The gospel has become the power of God in me. And that made the difference. He literally got on his horse and left London and he worked his way up to every village he came to. And he preached the gospel and thousands upon thousands of people 
turned to Christ and his ministry lasts even down to this day. But more than just seeing them come to Christ and one for Christ, he stayed in the towns and he worked through the scriptures. He discipled them and he had a method of taking them from infancy in Christ and through to maturity. A method so that he became known as a Methodist and that name sticks to the institutions that he started. Interesting, at the end of his life, and they tried to calculate the number of people who'd come to Christ through his ministry, uh, it was not as high as another man that was operating at the same time, Mr. Whitfield, who went about and doing the same thing, and he too was a great evangelist. But at the end of the generation, the disciples, as it were, that came out of Mr. Whitfield's preaching were negligible hard to find, as opposed to those that had followed John Wesley's way of discipling many people, many churches. We live down in the Pacific Ocean there, and a lot of uh, people from the Pacific Islands come down to New Zealand and live, and uh, they are very religious people. They shame us by their love for God. And when you ask how it started, it was. Methodist missionaries came through and Tonga and Nui and Fiji and Samoa and those islands that you hear names of have been uh, saturated with the gospel of the Wesleyan style, saved by grace and discipled through the work of people. I say that because if today that you're one who hasn't had that experience, then you can have it like John Wesley and it can change your life. While all this is going on, his brother Charles, who's more poetic, is seeing and learning and watching it. He's writing words that we sing in churches sometimes, but which we will remember forever. And perhaps a test about your spiritual situation today could be, as I put up some of the words and you look at them, does your heart resonate, resonate with them? Or do you see them just as words that you sang in church and mean nothing? Do you say, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing of God's love? Do you look and see at the cross amazing love? How could it be that you would die for me? Forget the other people. He died for me. Does that not work in your heart? And then this other one, no condemnation. Now I dread. No guilt I feel because Jesus and everything of him is available to me. I'm alive in him, he's my glorious head, and God has clothed me in the righteousness that belongs to him alone. He's given that to me. I'm free. Wesley wrote that and thousands of other songs. The difference it makes when I allow the Lord Jesus Christ into my life, when I understand that God's purpose is to make me like him and I don't deviate from that. Well, that doesn't really help us in having victory over our circumstance because you don't have a horse and uh, you don't, you know, these things aren't available. So get to the point. Does God really care about me and give me victory over my circumstance? Well, the Apostle Paul had something to say about that because he had some issues. We're not told exactly what they were, but we could perhaps predict they had to do with health and certainly with relationships, and that's where a lot of our issues come. But he said in one of his writings there, he said, you know, I had these issues, and I prayed to God three times that he would remove the problem. 
And each time he said, no, I won't remove the problem, but what I'll do is something better. I will give you my grace, and my grace is sufficient for you to work through the issue that you're facing. And I'll be honest to say that sometimes in an issue, I'm not sure that his grace is enough. We sing it, your grace is enough. And the words are there, but I would rather God move the obstacle. I would rather God heal the problem. I would rather God listen to my prayer and did it my way. Too often, I think, we pray that God will change the circumstances and bring comfort. But can I tell you that God is more interested in changing our character than he is in changing our circumstances? It's hard to accept because the issues are so, so powerful and pointing. Does God answer prayer? Does he answer your prayer? You could say, I guess, the longer you've lived, that yes, he has answered some prayers. I've asked something specific and he's provided, but if you're honest, you would say, no, he has not answered all my prayers. I've got two stories to round this up, and I don't have a silver bullet, as it were, to tell you how you can have victory over circumstances. You say these words and God will work, but I want to go better than that. Two stories that go back, uh, actually, 45 years. I had just begun ministry full-time, and of course I was younger, and I was interested. And I went to a church in another town from where I knew, and early in that experience, one of the elders called me and said, Kelvin, um, I want you to come with me. I've had a call from a young woman who's just uh, joined our church, and uh, her marriage is having some problems, uh, it seems there might be even some abuse and uh, it's not a good situation and she's asked if we would come and pray with them. So he came and picked me up and we went across the, to the other side of the city to the edge really where a new development was and we stopped the car before we got there and he said, Kelvin, we need to pray because after my first call to you I had a second call from her and she said, you're not to come. My husband has come home and he is extremely angry and he has said if they come they'll be met at the front door with a gun. I'm serious, they will not come. So we're going to pray. And uh, I was sort of hoping he'd pray, God, would you tell us to go home? <laughs> but uh, no, Max, the old elder, he knew God better than that. And he said, God, you give us the words to say to this young man. But he's going to have a gun. No word of the gun. And he prayed and we walked up to the gate, this, the door, banged on the door, the door flings open and there's the man, no gun, big smile, come on in. Good to see you. Yes, I have done some things. Yes, we need some help. Would you pray for us? And we leave. So I have to say, this is good. If pastoral ministry is like this, you pray to God and he sends an answer, then count me in. But I was suspicious, because how would God do that? Did he not have a gun? Had the gun been dropped by the wayside and lost? Well, how does a man change so dramatically in answer to my prayer? 
It came some months later when uh, I was got to know the folks and I found that the young woman's mother was in the church. So this guy's mother-in-law, the man with the gun. And we were talking and uh, by, by now the couple were uh, regular in church and I said how pleasing it was for you to see your daughter and son-in-law. Yes, she did, especially after that encounter you had. Aha, I said, what was that encounter? And she told me the story. One week before we arrived, the young man had bought a new gun. And if you're a young man who's bought a gun, what do you want to do with it? You want to shoot it. So he'd gone over to the neighbouring farm and he'd been shooting his gun at who knows what. But the farmer came and said to him, get off my land and stop shooting here and don't come back. Well, a young man with a gun who's got a little bit of arrogance also has a lot of confidence. So he'd marched up to the farmer with his gun and said, you keep quiet, I'll do what I like, and if you could say that again, I'll shoot you, and walked away. The farmer knew who he was, and so he called the police and said, um, I think you need to talk to this man. And so it's put down, we must talk to this man. Well, we go to a week, and the policeman comes to the next thing on the list, and it is go talk to this young man about his gun. And so he goes to the house 30 minutes before we arrive and knocks on the door. And the door flings open and he's faced with a gun. And the policeman tells him what to do with the gun and tells him what will happen to him if he uses the gun like that and the lessons he could learn. So did God answer our prayer when we showed up half an hour? Or was it coincidence? It was God's providence, certainly. And God answered that prayer. Second story is a year later with the same couple. They've come to the church, they've been active in the church, the marriage looks good, the mother-in-law is happy, everybody's fine. And even finer because there's a baby on the way and this beautiful child is born. A little girl. And again, it took me back two weeks when we were here in church. Mother's Day, baby dedication. If you were here, you'll remember because there were little babies brought in for a dedication. Little boys are good. They look a bit like Dad and they're, they're nice, but the little girl won our hearts. She had a nice little flower up here and they kick, they kick their feet. They kick their feet and they wave their hands. And we love it. And Pastor Mike wandered around too long, I thought, with the, the little kids. And he asked if we would provide a community of love and affection for these children. And you were so enthusiastic. Of course you would. What can be better than little children and the joy they bring? And grandparents, we can all be grandparents and aunts and uncles, and we love little children. Well, that's what was happening here. Here's this couple who've gone through some issues, and now they have a small child, a beautiful little girl. And there's talk of a baby dedication. And by now I haven't really done many. If any, I don't know. And so I'm ready for this. And then one day the phone rings and it will be the mother-in-law or the mother or the grandmother. And she tells me the child has died. They went in in the morning to see this little girl who's usually making some positive noises and kicking her feet. Nothing. Ooh, what does a young pastor do with that? 
Well, uh, you know how terrible that was. I, I, you try to imagine, and I can't imagine that. So the net result was there would be a service, not in a church. We would go straight to the burial ground, the small cemetery, and just some friends and family would gather and would I say some words. You know that's going to be very emotional. And so I decided I would write the words down carefully so that if the emotions got too big, I I would have a script to go to. I uh, thought to myself, we'll ask God for his comfort. We'll remind God that he knows best. Uh, We know and we will trust and never doubt. That's good. We don't understand, but we won't question. I liked all that. I put that down and there we went. It was a grey day, rain clouds in the distance, sort of wet underfoot and there we were waiting and here they come. She's got holding on to his arm and he's got his hands out like this and he's carrying a small white box. But when they first came in, it looked no bigger than a shoebox. And as they make their way through the headstones, we know there's no shoes in the box. It's the body of their precious little daughter. And they come and stand and our eyes meet and I knew immediately the words on the page were not enough. This was no time to tell them that God is good. This is no time to say that she's safe in the arms of Jesus. This is no time. They're not ready to listen to any of the things that may be true but right now can never be accepted by them. So I abandoned the notes. Remember, I'm a young, shall we say, naive man. I told them what I thought. This is a terrible thing that's happened. There's no way of understanding why children are born every day to parents who won't love them and don't want them and here someone who's prayed to God for a child and want to care and love and have a community of faith that want to stand around this, their child is taken away. And if you don't understand God and what he's done, it's okay to tell him. And you tell him good because he needs to know that you are not happy with the situation and you feel he's let you down. And having said that, we tried to sing a little song, but it really didn't work, and the the father took the little box and laid it in the ground and it began to rain and we closed it off. Uh, An older man approached me just as I was getting into my car to leave, and he came, called out, and I turned, and he came right up right up close, and very loudly said, how dare you, how dare you talk about God like that? How dare you go to the one who holds your life in his hand and say that he doesn't know what he's doing, that he makes mistakes? He doesn't make mistakes, and you have done it all wrong. Well, I drove away. I had nothing to answer. And I have to say, 45 years later, I still don't have an answer to that. I've done a lot of knocking on the door and found a gun. There have been a lot of white boxes in my ministry experience. I remember one year in Seattle at the church I pastored, 12 people my age, my age group, I buried one or other of the couple. And I had to ask God, why? 
are these people being deprived of their retirement years and their years with grandchildren that are being born? For no good reason, God, you seem to have taken these people out of the picture. Why is that? And mostly in those circumstances, uh, people have come to me, well-meaning people have come, and said, as you prepare for Jack's funeral, you know, remember, he's in a better place. I've never ever said that to a grieving widow or to a grieving parent. He's in a better place. You, you, know, you know what we believe. But when, take the, go back to the little family there, the days and the week before, they would come in and they would hear her. They would see her. They could touch her. And they could smell her. You like to smell babies' heads smell nice. So, Calvin, you're saying, with all that taken away from us, she's in a better place? Not yet do we understand that. And so it's hard because these things came directly into our house and I had words to say to God about that situation. And he listened, I think, but eventually I ran out of words and I had to listen to him. And he reminded me of who he was. He reminded me that he's had a gun or two in his face and a white box. He had a son and that son said to him, Father, I know your plan is good, but if it's possible, I don't want to go through with it. But it wasn't possible and I sent him to a place that in a part was very painful. But if I was to fulfill the plan, there was none other good enough to pay the price of sin to have a relationship with you. So it helps me these days to know that while I've had prayer requests tonight, he does know my situation and he cares. And I, he's led me to this psalm. And here's four bullet points that I would give to you if you can't understand what God is doing for the circumstances. No complicated. Can you first come and say, I will trust in the Lord. I've got no one else to trust in. Even if it's the last, I will trust in the Lord. And then I will try to delight in the Lord. As I come to a place like this and see the joy in the faces, delight in the Lord, and I will commit to your way, Lord. It's not what I wanted, it's not the way I would do it, but you've done it. And I will be still before the Lord. Don't get angry when other people to have a better life. Don't fret when things aren't going good for you and good for them. Refrain from that. I'm ashamed to think of the shopping list I've presented to him and the disappointment I felt when he didn't do the answer, give the answer just as I wanted. But these days I like to come to him with no agenda if I can and wait in his presence and be still in his presence instead of reciting a list of needs. I want to engage with him to learn what he wants. He wants me more like Jesus. That's the ultimate aim. Focusing on what I do have in Christ and not longing to have something else is very helpful as a starting point. I look to the future and I'm reminded I, I'm interested in music and uh, along the way I've learned, I liked, like the jazz music of the, south, of, of the southern states of America and the classical music. I love the classical music you hear in the malls sometimes here. 
but I'm intrigued by some of the songs that I learned when I first went to the States or heard of that were sung by the slaves that had been brought out from Africa. Terrible time. But when they came, they knew certain things. They had nothing. They were nothing. They'd lost every identity they had. And so they created songs that led them back to the relationship of God that they had and would have. As slaves, they would be barefoot, barefooted. Slaves wore no shoes, and so the extra pain of the heat and the cold would be theirs. But they created a song that gave them hope in times of no hope. And you might know it, but I rather like it. Hey, I got shoes. And you got shoes. All God's children got shoes. And one of these days, I'm going to put on my shoes and walk all over God's heaven. I may have no shoes now, and I'm, that's painful itself, but my hope is in the day when I will be in heaven and I will walk over God's heaven in my shoes. So this morning, whatever your missing shoes may look like, know that in his time and in his way he will provide but his provision, his situation, his determination is not to make it easier and more comfortable. It is to conform you to the image of his son. He hears your prayer, and just as he promised, he will come to you and do the impossible. Another song the people used to sing. Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. He does the things others cannot do. Trust him because I am persuaded that nothing can separate him and me, that he will fulfill his purpose in my life, in his way, and I will be pleased when I see the finished product. And you know what? He will be pleased when he sees the finished product. If he were to just patch it up like I would like him to do, maybe there would be pieces missing at the end. The picture would be incomplete. He knows your situation. He cares for your situation. Come to him in that relationship of love if you haven't. Rest in him in that relationship and commit your way to him. He cares. He understands. Don't say words just to please him. Tell him your heart and he understands and will bring relief to your situation, whatever it is. So the message is wrongly labeled. I called it victory over circumstances. It's victory through circumstances. The circumstances may not change, but you will have the victory. God can work and have victory in your life, and yet the circumstances remain the same. Psalm 42 the man was the worship leader and he'd been taken out away from the temple and into exile and he says, I'm like the deer looking for water everywhere. What's happened? I used to lead the people in worship but there's no temple, there's no people, there's no music. This is a disaster. And then he says, no, no, wait. These things are orchestrated by you, Lord, for my good and I will again praise you. Not for the help of getting me an audience that I can lead worship with but for the help of your presence. He will not forsake us. He will remain with us. Never will I forsake you, he said. I am with you always. Can we rest on that and give him the circumstances? Praise God. May God bless you in that. Amen.